sermon text for tonight is from Isaiah 15, or Isaiah, sorry, Isaiah 57, verse 15. And then in the back of our blue hymnal, the words of the catechism. Lord's Day 46, so the back of the blue, page 59, we'll read the answers to those two questions together for our catechism lesson. Going through the study now in the Lord's Prayer. Christians wonder how to pray, how to pray better. They wonder if there's any instruction manuals out there for prayer. And this is a a catechism's exposition of the Lord's Prayer is one of the finest you will ever read. Short and precise, beautiful, and we would do well if we read it and studied it more. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Just one verse as we think about this first line of the Lord's Prayer. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Hear God's holy word. For this is what the High and Lofty One says. He who lives forever whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Amen. Our catechism lesson, Lord's Day 46. Question 120, let's read the answer together, answers of these two. Why did Christ command us to call God our Father? At the very beginning of our prayer, Christ wants to kindle in us what is basic to our prayer, the childlike awe and trust that God through Christ has become our Father. Our fathers do not refuse us the things of this life. God, our Father, will even less refuse to give us what we ask in faith. Why the words, who art in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty as something earthly and to expect everything for body and soul, from his almighty power. I've learned over the past several years, or a few years since I've been here, about four years, that there's a lot of ebbs and flows when it comes to sermon preparation. Some weeks you feel like you got it and other weeks you reach out to your pastor friends and you say, I'm not really sure I understand how to do this. Um, And you feel totally inadequate to to the task. 
last couple of weeks have kind of felt like that for me. Um, been in a bit of a, of, of a rut, just feeling like I, I'm not producing anything that's, that's worthwhile. And uh, it's, it seems like the Lord often gives encouragement um, in the midst of those times. I, last Monday, a good friend of mine, a mentor, uh, Jim Thompson, comes here sometimes in the evening service. He's a pastor in Hammond, PCA pastor in Hammond. He's been a bit of a mentor to me. I'm not sure if I ever shared this story. That our friendship actually started in, in a rocky place on the day that I was licensed to be ordained at the, in our presbytery. Um, he got up and, and in a, almost kind of, a, he criticized one of my answers. I, it wasn't really a criticism. He did it very lovingly and in and, and a wonderful way. But really the courage he showed to stand up and, uh, and to, to call me out where I had been wrong made me respect him so much and uh, the love he's shown to me. Anyways, last Monday, he comes by and he gifts me a new set of uh, Puritan writings. You guys know that I'm uh, a, big, a big fan of the Puritans. 22-volume set, all the sermons of Thomas Manton. So you'll be getting a lot of Thomas Manton quotes in, uh, in the years to come. And... So just kind of feeling a little bit dry and in a rut. And Tuesday morning, I usually read a, a Puritan sermon or something to kind of get the, the week going and get my attention focused on the right things. So I said, well, I'll just open volume one of 22 and, and see what it is. And uh, volume one of the first sermon of the first volume of this massive collection was a sermon on the phrase, our Father in Heaven, expositing, expounding on the Lord's Prayer. So it was a good encouragement at the beginning of, uh, beginning of the week and uh, hopefully fruitful for us tonight as well. Isaiah fifty-seven, fifteen. Thus says the Lord, the one high and lifted up, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. I am high and lifted up. I am holy. I am matchless in my being and in my eternity and in my existence. But I have chosen to dwell with the one who is contrite and humble of spirit. Theologians call this the, the, the melding together or the meeting point of God's transcendence and his imminence. Right? Transcendence, he is high and above. Imminence, he is, he is close. Uh, one doesn't compromise the other because he comes close to the humble and lowly and contrite. Doesn't mean that he is no longer transcendent. He still is the one who dwells in the highest of heavens. And yet he has this relational connection, this covenantal bond with the one who is humble in heart. I'm not great at coming up with sermon illustrations, but one of my favorite I've ever come up with has to do with golf, and I know I've shared this one with you before. One of Jack Jack Nicholas's sons was asked, what's it like to be the son of Jack Nicholas, the the greatest golfer of all time? And this son had the experience of caddying for his dad in the 1986 Masters Tournament, which is the greatest tournament of the greatest sport in the world, and uh, ends up his dad comes out of nowhere to win this tournament in 1986. And he didn't even have his regular caddy, just wanted his son to 
caddy for them so they could have the experience. Older golfers will do that sometimes. Comes out of nowhere, wins the tournament in the 18th green. The crowd is going absolutely bonkers, right? Here's the, probably the biggest hero in the history of golf, loved and adored by so many. And uh, the son of Jack Nicholas, reflecting back on that moment, as someone asks him, what's it like to be the son of Jack Nicholas?" He says, I'll tell you. He said, when my dad, you know, coming down the stretch in 1986 Masters, birdieing you know, almost every hole on that final stretch, and on 18, he sort of finishes this masterpiece of, of golf, golfing greatness, and the crowd is absolutely going wild, and he bends down to pick up his ball, and kind of raises his arms in triumph, but the first thing he says is, where's my son? And he said it was so amazing for him in that moment to realize that everyone on the grounds there was soaking up the moment of, of this adulation and this wonder of what this great golfer had done, but on his mind there was one thing, I want to see my son, I want to embrace him. And that's something like what it is to be a child of God. The, the whole universe is resounding with the praise of God. He is high and lifted up, and he is worthy of all praise and adoration. And yet, as the universe sings his praises, as this song is, is never-ending, and it's always going on, and even in heaven there are angels around the throne praising this God, yet... He has set his love on his children. He has set his love on his church and on his people. That he has been so concerned with our salvation that he was able to decree it and accomplish it from eternity past and to bring it to completion in Jesus Christ. To be a child of this God is truly a wondrous thing. And to have him as a heavenly father is a blessing indeed. All prayer rests on this foundation, the foundation of understanding that God is holy, that God is majestic, and yet he dwells with the humble in spirit. We who are sinners, who need him, who come to him for cleansing, he makes us new and he gives us a place in his home. So we learn the closeness of a father and the majesty of that same father who is the God of all the earth. God is the father of all creation, but only his people, really his church, have the privilege of calling upon him as father in prayer. There's a sense in which God is the, the, the father of all the earth and of all people, right? As, as the creator, as the one who holds authority, there's a sense in which you could say he's the, the father of all. And yet, when we're talking about the Lord's Prayer and that first, that first line, our Father in heaven, by which we address God, really the only ones who have that privilege of saying those words in that way with any efficacy are God's children who have been adopted from their sinner status into the family of God. So John chapter 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you know God in Jesus Christ, you are an adopted child. Adoption is a beautiful picture, and it is a picture that illustrates what happens when sinners are saved in Jesus Christ. 
Thomas Manton defines adoption this way. Adoption is an act of free grace by which we that were aliens and strangers, servants to sin and Satan, are in and by Christ made sons and daughters of God and accordingly are so reckoned and treated. It means to go from the status of a sinner into a son or a daughter of God. And you are given the benefit of that. The idea of adoption ought to fill us with wonder and gratitude. To be adopted into the family of God ought to fill you with wonder and gratitude. It ought to do so first when we think about the family that you're a part of under sin. Because of your sinful nature and because of your sinner's status, uh, you are to be filled with wonder when you think about the fact that God saved you from being born into sin and put you into his family. So John chapter 8, Jesus is talking about this with the Jews. And he says to them, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. So those who are sinners, those who are sinful, and in a sense we understand this as being born and conceived in sin and having a a sinful nature, we are part of this other family, this family that you ought not want to be a part of. But as adopted children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High, cleansed and renewed in Christ, all of a sudden we look to the new family that we're in, the family of God, and it fills us with wonder. Again, we think about how wonderful it is when we think about not only the the family switch that happens in Christ, but also when we think about the value of the Son who is given to redeem us. Imagine parents who have one perfect son, a son who never disobeys, never disrespects, never acts out, is completely sweet and perfect, and parents, those two parents, give that perfect son in order to redeem for themselves a bunch of children who cause problems, who disobey who are difficult we look to our own nature our own sinful nature our own sinful tendencies and we look at the wonder of the the son that the father gave for us and we ought to at least in some sense say why would God give the glorious son of God Jesus Christ the only natural son of God without a sinful nature why would he give him to save me. First John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. In other words see how great is this love. That he has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. So adoption fills us with wonder and gratitude. The fact that you can call upon God as your father. Fill, ought to fill your heart with wonder and gratitude. It ought to be something that you meditate on, that you think about. I'm a child of God. And that does not happen naturally. And it doesn't happen by accident. It happens through the intentional sovereign grace of God. 
Let's think about some of the advantages of having God as a father. First, we can come to him. When you have a, a loving father, you always have access to his company, to his audience. You always have an ear that will listen to you. And when you have God as your father, that is truly a great advantage. He listens to us, his children, in, in ways that other people uh, can't have. He listens to us because we are his people who have been filled with humility through Christ. He promises that he hears us. Secondly, he supplies all our needs. He supplies all our needs. Philippians 4 verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We don't always feel like he's supplying all our needs. But he has told us. So it becomes a question of is it, is it your word or God's? It's your word against God's. You say, well, God isn't giving me all I need. But he's already told us that he will and he does. I said this a few weeks ago, that if we knew the end from the beginning, we would always only pray for exactly what we end up getting. Right? If, if, if we knew all the things that God knows... We would understand why he gives to us and why he brings our way the things that he does. And that's really important to understand when we think about prayer. That part of what prayer is, is humbling ourselves to say, you know the plan, I don't. At least part of our prayer ought to be, help me to rest in your sovereign plan. Help me, give me the grace to accept that which you give to me. He supplies all our needs. We need to believe that he does. Third, he shows pity for us in our misery. The greatest picture of, of God in the Bible, God the Father in the Bible, is a prodigal son. Because in some sense, we see all, we, all of us see ourselves in that story. The father who loves his son who goes away. The father who loves his son who, who stays. And they both kind of have their own problems. But think about the love that the father shows for the prodigal son. He comes back, he's covered in muck and mire. He's lost all of the inheritance. It was the father's money that he gave to him. He's spoiled those riches. He's spent them and they're gone. A pathetic figure. And yet, what does the father do? He runs to him. He loves him. He embraces him. He welcomes him home. God shows pity for us in our misery, at our lowest point, when we feel like we need God the most, he is there for us. Fourth, he disciplines us wisely, perfectly knowing how to shape and form us for heaven. Earthly fathers, hopefully, are good disciplinarians and know what to do with their children to, to lead them into obedient living, but they're not perfect. Earthly fathers are far from perfect, and all of us who are fathers will gladly admit that, quickly admit that. We have a lot of work to do and a ways to go, but God is a perfect father, and all of the discipline that he gives to us is perfect in order to form and shape us to be the people he wants us to be on the road to heaven. So Hebrews chapter 12 my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And it goes on to say this. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews teaches us that all of God's discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So when we feel reproved by the Lord, when we feel that we are undergoing some sense of discipline from God, We ought to know and understand what he is doing. We ought not to waste that discipline that he gives to us, but understand that when we humbly submit to it, God produces in us the peaceful fruit of righteousness, and he's allowing us to share in his holiness. Having God as a father also means protection and loving care, guardianship. Hebrews 1 even says this, to which of the angels has he ever said, uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And then it says this about the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The heavenly beings of God that he sends into the earth, they are carrying out his will to protect those or for the sake of those who are inheriting salvation. And then finally this, in laying up an inheritance for us. Some generous and loving fathers have the blessing of laying up an inheritance for their children. It doesn't mean you're necessarily a good father, but some fathers get to do that. Some uh, are good who are able to do that, and it's a great blessing, isn't it? And to be able to leave this world and to leave something to your children. But in God, our heavenly father, we have... The ultimate inheritance, don't we? That he has laid up for us. One that can never fade away. Eternal life and blessedness with him. With all of that, then we consider the fact that as his children, how does a loving child rightly honor his or her father? And thinking about it in terms of prayer. As the children of God, what are the ways that we ought to pray? First, we ought to pray in reverence. If a child does not revere his father, then uh, that is a relationship that, that is not right. He is not rightly honoring him. Malachi 1 verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts. If we understand what God has done and who God is, then we will revere him. We will come to him in prayer, wanting to revere him. Not only revering him, but loving him and endeavoring to love him and serve him more. Thomas Manton from that sermon says this, we never pray rightly except when we pray, resolving to cast off all sin. Think about that. Every prayer In some way, we ought to endeavor to cast off all sin. How can we call him father when we care not 
to continually displease him from day to day. If we're okay with living in ways that displease God and continually do so, how can we call him our father? So with reverence, with love, and then with gratitude, with gratitude. When we pray, we must not only remember what we want to get, what we want to have, but what we have already received, acknowledging that all is from him. I don't know who it was, but it was one of the Puritans who said, when God had given, after God had given the Son and the Spirit, there was nothing left for him to give. We're weighed down with all of these cares, all of these concerns in our lives, and they're legitimate concerns. And from our day-to-day perspective, it can seem like the biggest thing, and oftentimes it does certainly feel that way. But we ought to recognize and we ought to be able to see that God has already given us an immense blessing in Jesus Christ and yet another immense blessing in giving us the Spirit. So when we pray, it it ought to not just be what we want or what we want to receive, even if we say, if it's your will, give me this, if it's your will, give me that. But we ought to acknowledge that which he has already given to us. Thank you for what you have already given. And we must also be grateful that God provides us with so much to serve him. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He offers us uh, the freedom uh, from our anxiety. To be free from our anxiety for tomorrow. Be anxious for nothing. The Philippians chapter 4 says. He gives us his word, his spirit, and prayer, which is our medicine for worry, as Philippians 4 says. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer. Make your requests known to God. If you want to combat your worry and your anxiety, Paul says, pray. Fill your life with prayer. So then a couple of things as we close. What should you do When you do not sense that God is your father. Maybe you're listening to this and you say, well, I don't really feel like God is my father. I don't have that sort of a close bond or feel a a close love with him. Here are four things that you can do. The first is to claim fatherlessness. Claim fatherlessness. To, in prayer, go to God and say that you feel as if you are fatherless. Because what are the promises that we find in Scripture? Psalm 146. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. How does our Psalter hymnal put it? Helps the fatherless and widow. Right? God helps the fatherless. He's a father to the fatherless. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. So that's the first thing. Go to God in prayer. Tell him you feel fatherless and you want his help to the fatherless. The second is this. Claim for yourself total humility. What did the prodigal son do when he went home? First, he's feeding the slop to the pigs. And then he says, you know what? My father's servant, and then he's tempted to eat it himself. He says, my father's servants live way better than this. Here's the Here's the speech I'm going to make when I go home to my dad. I'm going to tell him that I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And so he endeavors, he travels the long journey home. 
And the whole time, you can just imagine, he's probably playing that speech in his head. Here's what I'm going to say. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. And when he shows up and he sees his father, that's what he says. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You see, he was owning to himself total humility. It's a picture of repentance. And so we who do the same, God has promised that he will be with those who humbly seek him and seek his mercy. He's a God who delights to show mercy. He's a God who delights to come to become a father to spiritual orphans. Claim fatherlessness, own to yourself total humility. Third, pour out your heart to God that you fully desire to know him more as a father. To tell him, to make your requests known to God, as Philippians 4 says. Make that request known. God, I don't feel you as a father. I want to know you in that way. The fourth is this, and this is probably the most important, is to claim him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way that, that Paul usually bookends a lot of his wonderful epistles, or at least begins them in that way. He greets the saints in the name of God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ is, as we said earlier, he's the natural son of God. And through his work, through what he has done, he has earned for us sonship in God. And that's why this biblical idea of union with Christ is so important, that we are hidden in Christ, that we are united to him, and we are co-heirs with him. All that he inherits is given to us, so that we bear the name of Christ as Christians. We bear the benefits of Christ. We hold the righteousness of Christ, and we have the sonship of Christ, because we are united to the one who is perfectly obedient. We are not perfectly obedient. We do not earn being called sons and daughters of God, but Christ has. And the hope of the gospel is to look to Christ and to trust in him. And as you trust in him, and as you know him, as you cling to him in faith, you can know that you are a son of God, daughter of God, child of God, because our God is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you are safe. You are safe in Christ as you trust in him. So be reminded of these things. Our father is a loving father. He dwells in heaven, and to have him there is a great benefit to us. It's because of that that we know heaven is our home. Where your father is, that's where you can go. Where your father's home is, that's where your home is. His home is in heaven. That's where our home is as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. We give you all the glory. We thank you that we can call you Father. We praise you, and we... We admit that we do not take the time to think about this enough. We don't take the time to think about your heavenly majesty or your fatherhood. We ask and pray that you will make this reality more known to us. We will give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.